Welcome to Willoughby Hills. I'm Heath Rasala. This is my podcast. Welcome. Episode 107 today. And Jane Wong is my guest. Jane is an author. She's a poet. She's a professor. She's a ceramic artist. We're going to talk about all those things today. And she's got a great new memoir out. It's called Meet Me Tonight in Atlantic City. And it's a book that I don't know that I would have read on my own. It's kind of a cool story of how it came to me. There's this little magazine that they have at the checkout desk at my local library. It's called Book Page. And every time I see a new issue of it, I always pick it up because there's always interesting new books in it that I just, I wouldn't know about otherwise. Like it's not my genre. It's not an author I know, whatever it is. And I happened to pick this one up. This was in the June issue of Book Page. And I, I read a little snippet about Jane's book. I said, oh my God, I have to read this. This sounds incredible. It is her story of growing up. It is her story of adulthood. It's both those stories kind of simultaneously. And what I really liked about it is it's really, it's a series of essays as opposed to kind of one continuous narrative. And really it's thematic driven as opposed to kind of temporally driven. You know, I think Oftentimes, when we think about our lives, we think about what happened in what order, right? And Jane's book got me to realize that so much of our life is about these recurring themes, these recurring patterns. In film, we call them motifs, something that kind of continues to come up again and again. Jane kind of looks at life in that way, and it's really fascinating. So, yeah, it's a book that I wouldn't have read were it not for Book Page magazine sitting there at the circulation desk in my library. I am thankful I did. I learned a lot from it. Jane's story is really interesting. She was born in New Jersey. Her parents were both Chinese immigrants. They were from an arranged marriage, came over here to the States at a very, very young age. A new couple, language barrier, culture barrier, all of it. They opened a Chinese restaurant in New Jersey. And it's the story of her childhood growing up in that restaurant It's a story of how her father's gambling addiction lost the family that restaurant, how her father ultimately left the family, and her mother became the breadwinner working nights for the United States Postal Service in a sorting facility. And it's a story about Jane finding herself as a writer and an artist and all those things. And we get into the writing process a lot today, which I really appreciated. It's interesting to sort of see where Jane's poet mind comes into play in terms of writing these longer form essays. And then there's also this issue that has become kind of a running thread on this podcast of just examining and, and re-examining American identity. And what what does it really mean to be an American, especially now in 2023? What did it mean in in my childhood and Jane's childhood? We're about the same age. How has that changed over time? And what still needs to happen to make that inclusive dream a reality for more people. These are all things that, you know, I've I've talked about with a lot of guests on this show now. I think about a lot. It's something that the pandemic really made me rethink. And it's something that I hope you as a listener are enjoying exploring with me because it is interesting. So yeah, there was a lot in the themes of Jane's book that really appealed to me, that really spoke to me. And Again, I'm thankful I picked it up. I hope you'll give it a read. Meet me tonight in Atlantic City. And before we get to the interview, I just want to remind everybody, I do have the Willoughby Hills newsletter as well. That comes out twice a week, every Wednesday and every Sunday. 
If you'd like to get on that mailing list so that you get new issues of the newsletter right in your inbox, as well as knowing when every single new podcast episode is out, go to heathrasala.com slash newsletter, enter your email address there, and you will get on the list. And it's become quite a fun little community. I'm really enjoying having a dialogue back and forth. People leave comments, people send emails back and forth. And it's just, it's become a really nice part of my life. And I'm grateful for the people that read it. If that's not yet you, that's okay. There's still time. Go and sign up, heathrasella.com slash newsletter. All right, here it is, my conversation with Jane Wong. Hi, Jane. Thank you for making time for this. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, thanks so much for like reaching out and reading the book. It's uh, pretty, pretty vulnerable. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always thinking to myself, I'm like, uh, why did I write a memoir? It was, was that a good idea or not? <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> so yeah, let's talk about that of just kind of the, the vulnerability of writing this book, because it is incredibly vulnerable, incredibly open. Where did the desire to tell this story come from for you? That's a great question. Um, and yeah, I, I definitely feel a little bit nervous about the book being out, but also excited about it, of course. But I think that the real impulse came from I, pretty much my mom, who's kind of like the center of the book and yeah. really wanting to spotlight her story and consider those constellations, you know, in terms of like her relationship with me and my brother, my father, like my grandparents and going further, further out that I really wanted to you know, tell these stories that I think oftentimes don't get told. And I realized, too, since I'm also a poet, that, you know, when I would read at poetry readings, I would tell these little stories before uh, I would read a poem. Yeah. And I realized that, like, oh, that's so funny. Like, no one would know the context of this poem right. if I didn't tell that story. And so... I was like, maybe I should actually expand and like um, make more space for this. And right. so uh, I certainly know, too, that, you know, obviously in memoir and nonfiction that I really had to stay in scene and in reflection, whereas in poetry, you can really just like have an image and then run away. Right. Um, like you actually you're really not supposed to explain too much, at least in my mind, like I just. You know, it was definitely a challenge to actually stay there for quite a long time. So, yes, definitely vulnerable. Yeah, but it's interesting, like, on that, be because it's not a traditional memoir in the sense of, like, a very linear story. It's not, you know, right. I was born, here's my childhood, here's my adulthood. You jump around a lot, and it is very nonlinear. It's it's almost poetic. I mean, it's I guess it's a series of essays, maybe, is the best way to, to kind of qualify it. But why that structure as opposed to something more linear? Yeah, you know, I, as a poet, am kind of obsessed with form and content and kind of thinking about how we write and how we tell stories as deeply tied to the emotional weight of whatever you're trying to describe or to, to kind of move the reader through. And so for me, like in thinking about, you know, my family's migration and thinking about all the tumult that happens in my family's life, like that's not linear. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there isn't even thinking about the idea of healing. Like it's not like a, oh, like this happened to me and now I move through this path to to my journey to be healed and now I'm healed. Like that doesn't work in a linear way. And so right. I felt like I needed to write this book. I couldn't write it in a linear fashion, I, I think, in terms of just like really considering 
all that is a part of me and my family. And I think, too, that the book is also in many ways like a, you know, coming of age story, but it also kind of resists, I guess, the linear idea of what coming of age means. Like there's that one chapter, Bad Bulldoons Roman with table tennis, where I kind of want to like grow up in reverse. Like I wanted to actually learn from my younger self. My younger self was quite wise. And what can my adult self learn from that younger self? And so I think all that nonlinearity is, again, so tied to just honestly being human. Yeah. Time is also like, <laughs> especially now, I'm just like, I have no idea what time it is ever. Right. Yeah. Especially during the pandemic. It's, yeah, it's mystery. Yeah, no, totally. And it's interesting, too. I mean, you talk a lot about like your dating life in the book, mm-hmm. too. And yep. when I when I think about sort of the way the book is structured, it's almost like dating you in a way of like you get yeah. to know somebody like you don't sit down on a first date and say, OK, here's the story of me. Like it's mm-hmm. told in pieces and parts and sort of as you do in the book, like you can relate a story from when you're five years old to something as a teenager to something in your 30s and sort of see a linear path through one piece of it. And then shift gears and say, oh, and then there's this other story. Like, that's kind of, I guess, not just dating, but friendships or whatever. Like, that's how we get to know each other. It's through these little pieces and parts. It's not a clean structure. Exactly. And I think that for me, um, these little bits and pieces are so central, I think, just to how I live through the world, but also like how I write, too, is that I'm kind of obsessed with imagery and like how imagery can create those thematic like you said, like constellations or patchworks. And so even thinking about the theme of fruit throughout the book or glitter or any yeah. of these reoccurring elements, uh, Greece, for instance, like all of these sensory details have a story within them that connects to another story. And so there is a through line. I think it's more for me, like for me as a reader, even like I take a lot of pleasure in trying to do that work or trying to figure out like, you know, where is the the writer trying to like lead me without being led, if that makes any sense, you know? So maybe that's partly just like the books I'd like to read. I I tend to have to work a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that was my reaction kind of in reading to it reading it too, was like, I was getting nervous for this conversation, honestly, because up until this morning, like I was reading it in these pieces and parts and trying to kind of think it through without actually sitting down and like writing out questions just like what do I want to talk to her about what's my impression of her what you know what are what are my reactions to reading this and then like I sat down to write out a list of questions and I was like oh I have this this really complete portrait of you and these really kind of fully formed ideas that I didn't realize were there I guess until I had to kind of piece them together like it it came in these these small pieces but then there was this whole in front. It's it's like looking at like an impressionistic painting or something almost where like you don't realize until you take a step back. Oh, it's been there the whole time. Yeah. And that, you know, it's really funny too that. I mean, I do plan that to a certain degree, but I also have to let like that go. For me, my writing process has always kind of uh, refused an overplanned structure or overplanned like ideas to what this is going to be. Yeah. Like I did have an outline for this book but I also had to allow myself to take like uh, pivots or like go down this different avenue that I had originally planned it's like for me writing maybe this is because of my background in poetry is like I love bewilderment I love being bewildered by 
what writing can do to me, even if I think I have control over what I think I'm going to write today, um, it tends to go somewhere else. That also includes like the life of the book too. Like after I finish writing it and after this book has been out for, I think about a couple months is that, you know, I hadn't seen my father who, you know, is pretty central in the book too. And, you know, kind of left our family when I was um, much, much younger. I haven't seen him in maybe like 16-ish years. The last time seeing him, you know, for a family and a function. And yeah. remember, I finished my uh, East Coast book tour in uh, Atlantic City, yeah. <laughs> which was like perfect. And it was so emotional. And I actually felt like I needed to see my father. And it was, and I did. I went yeah. to go see him. It was really difficult. I went with my brother. And like, it's so strange that the book and me writing it, like, it allowed me to be able to kind of like see him. But it's, it's so strange. Like, I still need to write a new scene that just happened of sorts in my heart and my mind but I can't help but connect it to the scene where my brother tries to go over to you know our dad's house to watch like the NBA playoffs and gets rejected like yeah. now I'm already doing that kind of connection but things have changed dramatically since then right but yes the I I can never predict what the book will um, I guess want for me. Maybe that's a little woo woo, but you know, yeah, no, it, uh, it I, I, get it, I believe though. in ghosts. It's... I'm kind of like sort of Buddhist, like you know these 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 elements, you know. Yeah, no, and and as you say, like you think you're going to write something, and as you start typing it, like something else comes to you and say, oh yeah, that's that's this connection, or you know what, like it it's not always there, or maybe like I'm saying as you know my reaction to the book too of like it is there, but you've got to start piecing it together, and then all of a sudden it becomes really clear. Um, I do want to ask you just what you were saying about going and visiting your dad, because he does play such a central role in this book. And, you know, it's it's interesting, like, after he leaves the family, there's this scene in the book where he kind of comes back. And okay. you say he just he walks into the garage as if he never left. And like, I wasn't sure kind of what to make of that. But then the scene you mentioned, too, where, where your brother goes to his house and is like, hey, let's watch this game. And he says, no, I'm too busy and he shuts the door. Like, I guess, what what did you learn from, from visiting him this recent time? Yeah, I think that, you know, and I kind of tried to kind of like write through it in the memoir and thinking about the fact that the person can hold a multitude of complexities, right? That you know, and I, I do forgive him as a daughter. Like I, I, I can't hold on to my rage and my sadness, right? Especially in terms of his relationship with my brother. Um, but I have difficulty, I think, forgiving him in terms of being a husband to my mom because, you know, later in the book too, she reveals quite a bit of, you know, like hints of domestic violence that I was kept hidden from, yeah. right? Uh, as a, as a younger person. Um, and I will say, too, that, like, I think that at the end of the first chapter, um, the title chapter where I kind of imagine strolling the boardwalk, you know, where my father had spent all that time gambling in Atlantic City, I still in some way hope for some sort of reconciliation or some sort of, I guess, peace, I yeah. suppose. And I knew that his health wasn't doing well and he was getting older. And so just seeing him in, in June, it was really emotional. In fact, like, you know, it was it was pretty jarring too. Like he was in a rehabilitation facility and it was really hard to see my father as someone who was like older. Yeah. And I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't emotionally prepared for that. 
And my brother, in fact, was the one who kind of really held everything together. And he was being the adult in the situation, I suppose, uh, whereas I was just like a mess, right? Yeah. Uh, though I didn't, you know, show it, I don't think, but I emotionally was. And my father was, you know, just silent. It was, it was really difficult. But I also think to myself, too, that, you know, in that moment, um, when, he, when he saw me, and even, you know, I was wearing a mask, I think for a moment he thought I was my mom. Mm. Like, I looked pretty much exactly like my mom. And so yeah. I think he was really startled um, when he first saw me because it's been so long, but he was very confused. He was yeah. just like, you know, especially again with the mask, but also in just thinking about me being almost 40 and like you just thinking about her age around that time, right? right. Like it was a strange moment. But again, I felt like I needed to, to see him. And I think also being back in Atlantic City after so much time, you know, uh, my mom and I stayed in a, a casino hotel. Like it was the most bizarre kind of return. Yeah. Um, and in fact, my mom and I were sharing this room at the Tropicana and she was like, let's gamble. And I was like, wait, what? Yeah. It's like I, the last thing I ever want to do, you know? And she was like, no, let's redo this. Let's fix this of sorts. And so mm. we went downstairs to gamble and we couldn't actually figure out how to use the slot machines. And so we, <laughs> we lost $5, gave up, and then just went on the boardwalk and just like, you know, got ice cream. But again, like the book allowed me to, to do that. I would have never done that and see my father if I didn't write this book. I, I know that for a fact. Yeah. And I mean, I think part of that process of humanizing him too, and, you know, talking about his gambling addiction and things like that first chapter, you talk about it's not just sort of him in isolation, but it's this larger problem that, you know, these casinos in particular seem to prey on Asian Americans and kind of market to them and have buses from Chinatowns to the casinos. How much of that did you know and how much of that was was a learning process through the book and and did that change your perspective on him at all yeah that's definitely a huge part of i think my forgiveness and my again like the complicated layers of who he is, is as a person is the very fact that this was not a singular story right that this was actually the story of like so many uh, you know and in fact being on tour like people coming up to me and saying like oh my my aunt or my uncle or my dad, like, you know, went through that and, you know, left our family and, you know, yeah. everything was destroyed in terms of the the debts and um the, the, the gambling addiction. And so in many ways, it was really powerful for me to research that later in life and kind of really understand that it was kind of out of my father's control to a certain degree. You know, he was in many ways someone who wanted to have some sort of control or some sort of financial power, right? And that as somebody who comes to this country without any kind of um, English language skills and with very little money, like this was his ticket, right? To get something quicker than having to, you know, again, work all those hours at the restaurant. And so it's hard, right, to kind of see that, but also know what that led to in terms of our family and, you know, the restaurant failing, which was such a huge part of our lives. It really was. It's still it's still central. It's still a Chinese restaurant, you know, <laughs> they're just another family. And it's so odd to think about all the different avenues like or pathways my, my or portals my life could have taken, you know, thinking about, you know, sure. the movie every, everywhere all at once, um, and which I love. But honestly, I am thinking about how like targeted 
certain immigrant communities are in terms of gambling. Like I mentioned, like the casino buses in Chinatown. I was like, would there have been another pathway? I don't, you know, it's like, hmm, it's it's just so on purpose. And it's it's heartbreaking, yeah, you know? It is. And, and it's interesting, like I'm up in the Boston area. And so we have um, buses here that service like Mohegan Sun and Foxwoods. And there's kind of another layer to it, too, of that so many of these casinos are on indigenous land and, and owned right. by indigenous people. And just like it's it's almost like a double exploitation at that point. It's all it's all heartbreaking. I mean, ultimately, yeah, just, yeah, it really is it's laughing because like it's just like sometimes I just I think the book, too, for me to to write it, it was like it was so painful to write. But I, I it's almost like I had to like. I don't know, have some sort of levity in the ridiculous horror of it all, I suppose, yeah. you know? No, definitely. Um, you mentioned the restaurant and that being such an important part of your childhood. And I mean, literally like growing up, you know, playing in the in the kitchen and things like that. And like that was that was your world. I was really curious, like tying it to another part of the book, I guess, who talk about the challenges of uh, like doctors and dentists that come over from China and have a language barrier or sometimes even just like a jargon barrier and have trouble getting licensed in the States. And so they kind of run these um, illegal medical facilities like in Chinatowns and they're um, through a network that you kind of find them and, and can get medical services through these doctors that were accredited in China but aren't here. Like I was thinking about that and your parents' journey on the restaurant side of just all the things that you need to know to run a restaurant in terms of, you know, health codes and you know, right. paying taxes, wages, whatever, like all these different things that come into owning and managing a restaurant. Like how much do you know about their story in terms of just how that all came to be and how they ended up owning this restaurant? You know, that's a great question. And <laughs> let's just say that I don't, I don't think that everything was done correctly <laughs> uh, or to code or whatever you sure, want to. Yeah, yeah. But I guess even like just finding that business, like because there are I, I always marvel at like you can be in in the whitest of white places out in the middle of nowhere. And it seems like there's always a Chinese restaurant somewhere. And like and usually it's it's recent immigrants that are owning and running yeah. them. And I always just wonder, like, how if you looked at a map and said, I'm going to move to Missoula, Montana and open a restaurant, like just how that process works has always been kind of interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, everything. And this is kind of what the larger scope of the book, too, is about community aid. It's never the story of one singular person does this thing. Right. At least in my family, it was exactly that. Like it was a multitude of family members. And when I say family, that doesn't include blood family, um, but community members from, you know, the villages that, you know, my grandparents were from, right? Sure. Like everyone coming together, pulling their money to kind of invest in one space in order for that to make enough money to go ahead and help someone else start another restaurant. And so, you know, my uncle had a restaurant, like, and, you know, you know, my family has had these connections with each other um, that would, you know, fingers crossed, like pay off. That's yeah. the whole idea, right? But it was a ton of just pooling resources and labor too. I mean, like everyone who worked at the restaurant was, you know, in our family. And so yeah. it was like a responsibility. It was like a duty. This is kind of a under, it's like the nod of like, this is what we're going to do, you yeah. know? Um, we're going to help each other out. And even thinking about, this way back and thinking about like the Chinese Exclusion Act, et cetera, but even the idea of like paper sons, right? Like, you know, kind of the idea of like, oh, this this is not 
blood relation, but we're going to try to help each other come to the U- you know, U.S. And it's just like in thinking about all these kind of um, ways to to offer that mutual aid, I suppose. And I think it's almost spiritual too. Like there is this kind of like understanding that this is, if you help someone out, like this will, this will be good for your soul of sorts too. Yeah. So I'm not sure exactly how it happened, which because my, my grandfather and my grandmother on my father's side passed and um, you know, I don't really connect with my family on his side. Like it's really, cause my mom was the one who was arranged to marry him and yeah. you know, her life started at the moment where she was already in the restaurant. Like the restaurant's kind of a mystery to me in many ways too. I think about that all the time. Like I, and I write about it in I think a chapter called ghost archive where, you know, trying to research some of this history through um, oral storytelling was really difficult when there's an inability, I think, to to, to actually access yeah. those stories. But I can only tell it from what, you know, what I was able to, to access, right? Or what I was able to hear in the kind of between spaces of right. what these stories, what people are willing to tell as well. Um, because I will say too, in thinking about the impact of like a cultural revolution, the Great Leap Forward. It, it's very uh, difficult, I think, to decide what you're willing to to share as well. Yeah. It's complicated, and all to say, all to say, yeah, yeah, no, totally. And you know, it, it's interesting too thinking about that kind of unofficial network because right. there's another writer that that I, I read a lot of his work, and he's kind of compared. A lot of different restaurants, um, not just Chinese, but, you know, Indian or Thai or different things to like, they're almost franchised, but not really where like you can go anywhere in the country and expect certain things that you kind of make a joke in the book about authentic, uh, in air quotes, Cantonese cuisine that like, it's not, it's Americanized and an American audience expects certain dishes on a menu and things, but like kind of every restaurant conforms to that. You know what I mean? Like there's this... It's not the food that you would eat, but it's the food that you're expected to serve, which is really interesting. Absolutely. And I think it's so funny to me in thinking about the idea of Chinese American takeout restaurant food and like the crab rangoon, which is still a very bizarre dish to me. (laughs) But also at the same time, like there's like foodie culture, like bougie foodie culture where people desire this kind of you know elevated authentic experience which is also pretty much just the same um right. you know in thinking about fusion i suppose or or even kind of trying to to kind of chronicle guild certain ingredients that were considered peasant food yeah it just it's just been as someone who um grew up in a restaurant but also is like i love eating and i'm surrounded by i just i teach food writing as well that you know there's so many complicated ways to talk about food and and kind of getting as far away i think from the actual heart of it which is like ancestral nourishment like mm. fully for me like in thinking about why i i desire a certain flavor like i don't i think it's in my like blood or something i'm not it's hard to describe yeah. whereas like i think when you go out to a restaurant and someone's trying to replicate that or at least maybe even, even like thinking about stealing recipes like i feel sure. like you know yeah, yeah. there's sometimes just like this discomfort and just like the whole idea of elevating something too is troubling for me, like going into a restaurant that feels so harsh and even clean, honestly. I'll, <laughs> I'll be honest, like there is something about growing up in a restaurant that I kind of miss being in spaces that have that kind of delicious grime, so to speak. It like yeah. makes it 
delicious somehow to like <laughs> have yeah. a bit of <laughs> no totally i i can see that yeah. um i i want to shift gears too a little bit and talk about your mom because as you talked about oh, yeah. earlier like she is such a central piece of this story as well and i mean you mentioned your your physical resemblance to her yeah. i mean you were talking earlier about just the reluctance to write this book and the more yeah. that i got to know your mom through reading this like she's somebody that is is very particular about the way she looks and projects a certain image to the world and like yep. you were never kind of allowed to to look poor it was always like you're always well presented and things what what has her experience been with this book being out in the world of just like it is so personal and is just as much about her as it is about you i guess like has she has she resisted that at all or has has it changed her mind about things at all? Yeah, my mom is definitely a, a total extrovert. Uh, <laughs> we are very different. I am not that at all. Um, in fact, I remember when I was, you know, a teenager, she would just be like, aren't you supposed to be at parties? Like, what are you doing here at home? And I was like, oh, I'm just reading books. Um yeah. So she she loves the fact that the book is out. I know it is certainly a, a vulnerable book, of course. And I think she, the way she described it to me was like, she was like, I know everything already. Yeah. So don't like worry too much about it. I remember distinctly Root Canal Street. That chapter uh, originally began as an essay um, kind of on its own. And I did need to get her permission for that one because, you know, I knew it was going to be really hard for her to, there's certain things that's interesting in terms of her permission. That was the one thing that was hard was like having her permission to admit that she doesn't have any real teeth mm. um because she is such a put together woman that she just it was really hard i think for that to be out in the world um and, and no one would know right yeah her fake teeth and so uh i remember talking to her a lot about like you know the fact that this is really about our relationship and caretaking and this kind of trust that we have with each other and she gave me permission. But I know that it was difficult for her because throughout the book, she has always been someone who believes in the power of like who she, the image she can create of herself. Like she yeah. has always been that before the idea of self-made or whatever, they're like, whatever, you know, like fake it till you make it has <laughs> yeah, it's existed. Right, right. She's always believed in that. And, you know, when I was growing up, when we didn't even you know, have money for even just like books or school supplies, she would be behind on her bills and she would still buy, you know, a really nice jacket, Yeah. you know, because like it was that was more important <laughs> to her than having to pay that bill yeah. because it was the respect she needed and desired, I think, from people in the neighborhood. She really was trying to to do exactly that, fake it until you make it of sorts. I think for me, upward mobility is really difficult and I'm still like, I still feel a lot of icky feelings around it as a professor. But um, sometimes I feel like if I'm going to one of those conference mixers or whatever with other professors, I almost feel kind of like, oh, like they have maybe have no clue how I grew up, yeah. you know, going to illegal dentists and, and whatnot. That it is something that, you know, is really important to me, I think, to talk about growing up, you know, working class, making do with what you have. The joke is that, you know, there there's BJ's Wholesale Club, the the cheaper Costco. Like people are always like, oh, yeah, Costco, get a deal. It's like, oh, Costco is expensive, yeah. you know, like, you know, actually. Yeah, I think that for me, 
it was just really important to tell that story in the midst of like crazy rich Asians right. and this there's been a, a plethora, I think, of like reality TV about these kind of like Asian American dynasties or something like that. Yeah. So I really wanted to highlight just, you know, working class folks, you yeah, know? Sure. But it's interesting too, like kind of going back to your mom's vanity. I don't, I don't mean that as a pejorative, but just, you know, she, she cares about how she looks. You're insane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, she kind of imparts that into you of being very concerned about the way you look and conforming to a Western sense of beauty, I guess I would say, or, you know, in particular, a white sense of beauty. And that's something that you kind of struggle with in your teenage years. And it was interesting, I guess, because like a part of me when I was first reading it was thinking, okay, like this is an American problem. But you talk about like going to Hong Kong and, you know, having a cousin that wants to lighten your skin because you've been at the beach and different things that like... How much of that, just your understanding of beauty and beautiful, and like how much of that do you think is because of the world we live in now? And how much of that, like if this were China 300 years ago, would that still be the case? Or is it informed by Western media and in particular white media? Yeah, I definitely think it's very entangled at the heart of it, though. It's about class. Mm. And I think that at least for my mom who grew up in the countryside, like, Whitening products are like very, very commonplace in in Asia. And so like for her, it's just like, oh, to be lighter skinned is to mean that you work in the office or like you have a white collar job. You don't have to be in the countryside and the farm, you know, like farming. For her, it was like a means to like say like, oh, I'm middle class. I'm upper middle class. Like it's it's. You know, thinking about these fancy products, too, and, like, trying to buy Shishido, but, of course, like, buying it kind of un- under the table or, like, at a discount beauty store. Like, my yeah. mom wanted so badly these kind of, like, rituals of beauty that were very tied to class. Yeah. Um, and that had to do in many in many ways, too, like, what these whitening products were selling as, uh, as an idea, right, of, I don't know, like, upward mobility of sorts. I didn't even know, honestly, when I was like a teenager that I was using these whitening products. It was like one of those things where I just like used whatever my mom gave me. And then like I realized I was like, oh, my gosh, like I'm actually, you know, disappearing of sorts. Right. (laughs) My skin was getting super translucent. It was it was kind of quite eerie. Um, And, you know, my mom has changed quite a bit since then. You know, I think so much of that time, too, was like she was she was young and she was a young person trying to figure out how to place herself amongst her peers. And I think now she really does not care, as I do too. You know, I don't really give a fuck anymore. And so it's like, I think now my mom is very obsessed with like rituals of beauty that she actually can personally curate, so to speak. You know, like she likes the things that she likes and she does not care nowadays i think what other people say but back then she she was very obsessed with like this was the trend that was like happening and she wanted to be a part of that it was her way of being respected too i mean i think that the amount of disrespect my mom has experienced i can't even imagine like you know um and so i think to her being a postal worker like you know she still dresses up to go to to tonight shift and that's a matter of also creating her own kind of, I don't know, rituals of self-respect and getting dressed up. So yeah, that was a difficult chapter to write. I certainly, I don't know how many people kind of 
talk about using whitening products. There's a lot of parts in the book that are just like ugly, like just yeah. not the like, icky, you know, to to write through. But I, I felt like I needed to, in case there was, you know, someone out there who was like, oh, shoot, like my aunt made me do that too or something. My mom also like gave me these products. Yeah. Well, I, I want to ask you too, just in thinking about all these different signals, I guess, that you got growing up, like there is this kind of interesting blending of of your background and that like you were born in America, raised in America, but there are times where you don't feel fully American in the book. Of Chinese heritage, but don't feel fully Chinese, you know, have language barriers and and things like that and and cultural differences. Like, how has that been to navigate of just finding your place in the world relative to all these different cultures? Yeah, again, like, I I think so much of, you know, the book is such a coming of age story. And I, I feel like there's definitely that particular period of time, especially when I was like, a younger person slash into like, you know, my college years where I was really trying, I was wrestling with like, what does that mean in terms of my multiplicity of identities and the discomfort and the shame, I think like kind of sits in you kind of like mud um, for years, you know? And so even just recently, I just signed up for a Cantonese like language class, like, you know, like I'm, I'm about to turn 39 and I'm like, it took me this long to finally like <laughs> make the move to like, learn Cantonese, which is so kind of like uh, exciting, but I also feel still that that muddy pit in my stomach of like, oh gosh, like what if I'm not good at it? Or what if I fail at it? I'm going to be such a terrible like Chinese person, you know, or like twice on these person I failed. Um, And so I still feel that, but also I also don't care because I'm like, what do I have to lose? I tried. And yeah. so like there's I'm excited about taking that class, but I would have never been able to do that as a younger person because there was just too much wrapped up, I think, in trying to find my my place in the world. Not that I've found my place, but I'm okay with not having a place, so to speak. I, I feel okay just being kind of like a jellyfish with all my identities floating about. But I know certainly as someone who teaches Asian American literature and Asian American studies, especially working with a a lot of young folks, like these big questions about identity and especially what in the world is Asian American, right? Yeah, That is definitely something we talk a lot about, that it's not, not as simple as like existing in one solid idea as to what that means. It's also going to evolve over time, but it was a struggle because like until you meet these communities that you feel seen in, right? The book also talked a lot about like, you know, finally being in community with with other people who have shared similar experiences with me. You know, it almost feels less lonely. And so in part, writing book is also a means to be less lonely, I suppose. Like mm-hmm. I'm writing to my younger self, but also to whoever this resonates with, especially as a woman of color, especially as someone who's Asian American. All I can say is that I feel very much kind of like pleased to to be everything and nothing at the same time like <laughs> yeah. nowadays, um, which is exciting. I feel like finally, my goodness, I don't have to feel difficulty around it, you know, and there's so many of us that just like don't have the language skills or have never been to this place, right? Yeah. Like, or people who are quite transnational have multi- multitudes of, of cultural identities while kind of living in these different places over years. Yeah, no, it's, it's a lot to 
to unpack. And I'm grateful you wrote the book to help kind of explore some of that. I do want to shift gears here at the end and talk, get, get off your writing for a minute, I guess, and talk about something else, which is your work in ceramics. You have a, an Instagram oh. handle that's devoted to that. that. Like, I'm just, I'm curious because it's, it's interesting to me, I guess, when people have other passions besides like the one thing that they're known for, like, how did ceramics come into your life and like, what role do they play? In your day-to-day life. Yeah. Oh, thanks for shouting out my ceramics. I like to create things that um, I can fail in. <laughs> I think to a certain degree, writing has become a bit of a, a like a comfort blanket. Like uh-huh. I almost feel a little too like cozy, if that makes sense in writing. Though I still am, am shocked and bewildered by what words can do all the time. Sure. However, um, when there is like, you know, a po- you're making a pot and it just fell over like it's done like it just gotta just like take it off the wheel and reclaim it like gotta rewedge it um so i feel like for me ceramics has been a really kind of special new space of creation where i feel like i'm almost like a novice all over again and i love that feeling of not knowing how to do something but then trying to learn and intuit my own style it's not unrelated i think to to writing because it feels very much like poetry or it feels Mm. very much like making something out of mud is so bizarre and particularly i've been really uh loving like making food objects i like to make things that have no use um which it's actually shockingly a lot of people whenever i'm at the studio they're like oh you're gonna turn that into a candle holder oh you're gonna turn that into incense holder i was like no it's just a persimmon like i just it has no use and I like maybe use useless things um, generally. But I think for me, it's also been really cool to be able to make something that felt it's like I grew up eating all these like little, you know, bowls. And I the one thing that I make that's like, quote unquote, usable are bowls mostly. Yeah. Um, and I for some reason can't make large bowls like I can only make small bowls like on the wheel, I should say. Yeah. Hand building, I can make larger bowls. But it's like, those are the bowls I, I only keep making the same exact size bowls that I used to eat out of as a child. <laughs> and so it's just like, I have so many of them. I really love uh, trying new things and interdisciplinary art and trying to give also my writing like a new life. Like, for instance, in my poetry, like one time I took this poem called The Long Labors and I cut it out, the letters out of rice paper sheets and rice paper melts when it hits something kind of like liquidy. And so I, sure. I folded these words into a dumpling mix, my mom's dumpling mix. And then I like cooked and ate my poem. And that was so nice. Like I like to do these things because like I don't want sometimes for the book to just sit there or yeah. the writing to sit there. I want to do something. And so wangmom.com, which is this bizarre character I made up in the memoir. Sure. I bought the domain and I'm, I'm making her real. And so nice. I'm working with a developer, you know, and so just stuff like that. It's fun. Like, you know, creating should be fun. That's what I've learned from my younger self. All right, there we go. Jane Wong. What'd you think? I learned a lot in that conversation. The writing process stuff was fascinating. Just thinking about form and structure and kind of the similarities between how we live life and how we write and then the differences too i guess it's interesting go check out meet me tonight in atlantic city jane's memoir it's a really great read i really enjoyed it i hope you'll like it too go check that out 
And also just a reminder to get on the list for the newsletter, heathrasella.com slash newsletter. Not only will you get new newsletter issues every Wednesday and Sunday in your inbox, you'll get new podcast episodes, and you can do all that for free. If you want to upgrade to a paying membership, you can help support this podcast and you'll get early access to the podcast as well as some bonus posts. I'm at Heath Rosella on social media. Let's connect over there as well. Thank you for listening to Willoughby Hills. Appreciate your time. Stay safe. <laughs>